For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, I'll talk with Dave Isay, the founder of StoryCorps, about how you can participate in next week's Great Listen 2016. Here is StoryCorps recorded in Tucson, with a girl and her father reminiscing about the good times and the bad. And Feeding Our Future looks at how the Community Food Bank makes locally grown food accessible to more people in Southern Arizona, not just to those in need of hunger relief. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. The motto of the nonprofit group StoryCorps is simple but profound. Listening is an act of love. Since 2003, people from around the world have had the opportunity to record stories in the form of a conversation with someone they love, stories that are preserved and shared through a special archive at the Library of Congress. The founder of StoryCorps is Dave Isay, a documentarian and audio engineer who has now compiled a collection of diverse conversations in print form for the StoryCorps book, Callings, The Purpose and Passion of Work. I talked with Dave Isay about that project and the upcoming event called The Great Listen 2016. I think for a lot of people, one of the first times they came in contact with the kind of storytelling that StoryCorps really specializes in was in some of the work done by Studs Terkel when he traveled the country interviewing people with an old wire recorder. And he wrote a book called Working. This new collection is called Callings, and it's the purpose and passion of work. So can you kind of reflect on what that title means to you and was the work of Studs Terkel influential on you? Absolutely. I mean, Studs was a, a great friend and a, and a hero. And actually, when we opened StoryCorps um, 13 years ago, he was the guy who cut the ribbon on our first booth in Grand Central Terminal. And he must have been 93, 92 at the time. He since <laughs> passed away. But he was, you know, he was one of the most generous people I ever met. And he flew to New York to cut the ribbon on StoryCorps. And when he cut that ribbon. He said, we know who the architect of Grand Central Terminal was, but who laid these floors, who built these walls? Those are the stories that you have to get in this booth. And this book um, is certainly in many ways a tribute to studs. And it's about people who find meaning in their work. And it's, a, you know, it's an unusual book about work. There are no CEOs. There are no billionaires. There are no millionaires. There are no tech type, you know, titans. There are nurses and teachers and um, you know, people who have found uh, uh, profound uh, meaning in their work and, you know, love what they do and kind of shine a, a beacon of light, uh, a path for, um, you know, for all of us to follow in terms of what it means to have a meaningful work life. You know, usually when we have a mobile booth that parks in front of, you know, some civic, big civic place, it could be the state capitol or the uh, library or in town square, um, and the only time we've ever parked it in someone's driveway was uh, Studs Driveway in Chicago. Uh, and he came out um, and did an interview in the booth, which we actually animated, and you can find on the storycorps.org site. Another great story you can listen to there is one of the featured stories in Callings. It's uh, about a man who spent a career in the financial world, and then now he has adopted a second uh, calling, which is to slice locks at a fish market. 
Yeah. Uh, yeah. And he finds incredible joy in this. Yeah, I think he's, I actually think he's in his 80s now. I was lucky enough to meet him when I was on book tour earlier this year on the book. And, you know, his, he's still waiting to cut that perfect slice of lox, and he won't, he won't um, stop <laughs> uh, cutting until he does it. That eternal quest. <laughs> well, a few years ago, you established a great idea, and it's called The Great Listen. And uh, before our interview began, you said you felt that this year, following this election that we just had, it's very important for people to um, give this a try. So last year, we created an app, which makes it possible for you to record story for interviews, not in a booth, but anytime, any place with your mobile device, and then with one tap, upload it to the Library of Congress. And we tried this experiment last year. Um, to see how, how much we could scale StoryCorps. And we asked U.S. history teachers and social studies teachers across the country, just those teachers uh, in high school, to ask their students to record an interview with an elder over Thanksgiving weekend. And um, we didn't know what was going to happen. Uh, on the Thursday of Thanksgiving, you know, we saw a slight uptick in interviews, but nothing really happened. And then Friday, there was the same thing. It was just kind of steady state. And Saturday, you know, I had done a bunch of media interviews, and I started, uh, they were calling to see what happened. And I said, well, you know, the great Thanksgiving listen failed. But this idea of, of listening to each other is so important. We're never going to give up on this. We're going to try it next year. And then on Sunday, uh, we had given up. And on Sunday night, I got a text from a colleague saying, you need to look at what's happening on the app. And I looked, and there were thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of stories coming mm -hmm. in, 50,000 stories in one night, as many as we'd recorded in the first 10 years of StoryCorps combined, which was a great moment of kind of uh, light going off in my head because it hadn't occurred to me that um, kids wait until Sunday night to do their homework, but I will never forget it. Um, so, so it was a huge success last year. And this year, as I said before we got on the phone, um, we're throwing it up in the air, and we're trying something completely different um, all coming out of the election. We decided to open it up not just to social studies teachers, but to every teacher in every grade, college, high school, middle school, even elementary, if, 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 if you think the kids can do this, and take it as an opportunity when the country is traumatized by the divide. You know, StoryCorps in so many ways is about collecting the wisdom of humanity, and we thought it would be appropriate to have kids sit with elders and ask them for wisdom about this country and about healing and what we need to do to heal the, the divides in this country, to ask them questions about their hopes going forward after the election, about their fears going forward, and just to connect in that way. We have a clip from last year's Great Thanksgiving Listen that I really want to share with the audience. Um, this is an example of how simple and easy the conversation can be. We're going to hear a young woman named Kara interview her grandfather, James. You'll hear they're sitting in a 1994 Buick to have the conversation. That, that ended up being their sound booth. So if a, if a Buick can work, imagine the number of other places where you could yep. have one of these recordings. Yep. So uh, let's listen for a moment. How did you know that Grandma was the one? Well, she was a good looker. <laughs> we fit together. We were a good pair. Were you nervous to propose to her? No. We had something to say, we said it. Like you. <laughs> <laughs> what are your keys to a happy marriage? If something happened, just say I'm sorry and get it over with. <laughs> There's no reason to carry on. I just say, I'm sorry, I love you, and that was the whole story. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to be remembered as, like, a real tough guy, or...? Yeah, I was a pretty soft guy. When you I, intimidated when me when I was little. <laughs> I did. Yeah, you did. Are you happy about the life you've lived? Oh, yeah. It wasn't the easiest life back in them days. Mother died when I was four. 
And it was a tough life. He tells one story about how he was eight or nine, and he was ice skating on the river, and he fell through. He didn't have hot water wherever he was living with his dad, so he broke into the school and just took a hot shower in the school. I think that says a lot about his childhood, that there was really no one there to help him get out of the water or keep him warm. That was an interview that was done for the Great Thanksgiving List, and then as you hear, um, we asked uh, Kara to come back in and talk about the experience of interviewing her grandfather. And again, as you said, it just shows how, how easy this is. I mean, there are two things I can guarantee you about doing uh, one of these interviews. One is that you're going to find out things about whoever you're interviewing that you didn't know before. Because, as you know, the microphone gives you the license to talk about things that we just don't talk about. And the second thing is that you're just not going to regret it. You know, as I said, a quarter of a million people have participated in StoryCorps. One of the many miracles of StoryCorps is that, you know, every single one of those people has had a good experience. Thank you very much for your time and sharing uh, your plans and your hopes for the Great Listen 2016. Well, Mark, you know, we're all part of the same team fighting the same fight, and it's an honor to work with Arizona Public Media and Arizona Spotlight to get the word out there. Happy holidays. You can find a link to the StoryCorps app that Dave Isay mentioned on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. A StoryCorps mobile booth visited Tucson at the end of 2015 and recorded hundreds of unique stories. Next, we'll hear Rahelio Camarillo talk with his daughter Lourdes, who was then 11 years old. Do you have any uh, important family traditions you can think of? I like Mexican food. Mexican food? <laughs> okay, but how about traditions, like things that we traditions do? Traditions like the posadas uh, and all the buñuelos. Buñuelos. Pos- posadas in Navidad time? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's probably one of my favorite too. <laughs> what would be one of your earliest memories that you remember? Like when I was a baby or like right now? Yeah, no, when you were a baby. Like the first thing, as far back as you can think, like how about personal stuff, things that you've accomplished? that you've done or that you've experienced? Well, when I was little, the thing that I was like, oh my gosh, I finally did it, was when I stopped sucking my thumb. (laughs) (laughs) I remember that too. (laughs) Because I was sleeping and mom would always tell me, like, don't suck your thumb. And I just couldn't sleep. Like, my thumb was like all over here. Like, okay, I can't, I'm going to do it. And I just can't, I couldn't sleep. And so just like, I'm just like, I have to do it. And then it was like, (sighs) so... That took a long time to get you to stop that habit. Yeah. We put chile on your hands. We put all kinds of spices and lemon and things that I make would it taste. I still like it. <laughs> and you still. It didn't work. But it comes, it's part of your family because your tío, who is in heaven now, your tío Rodolfo, he used to suck his thumb too. Oh, he did? Mm-hmm. High five. Yeah, high five. <laughs> in heaven now. <laughs> Good point. Yeah. That's where he is. <laughs> too funny. Uh, going back to memories, what is your first memory of me? Like when you would come back from work and then all the steam from the pots and what mom was cooking and then you would come and then you would serve the plates and all that. Hmm. And when you would work in the studio mm-hmm. or when you were like working out. Mm-hmm. You got a good memory. <laughs> um, so you said that the saddest day in your life was when, when your mom and I got divorced about three years ago now. Was that, for you, was that sadder than when we realized that you had cancer? I didn't really care that much. <laughs> I was just like, 
I don't know. As long as the medicine tastes good. Yeah, you're about five and a half years old when we realized you had cancer in your eye, but you didn't even feel anything. It was a miracle we found it. You know how we found it? Yeah, I've heard it a lot of times. Oh, you have? <laughs> when you were talking to the guy in the D-backs game in Phoenix. Oh, right, right. When I was, like, playing with my dolls and you were coming from work and you were going to be like, hi, and I looked at you and then there was, like, this white thing, like, white balloon light thingy revolver. <laughs> right. Well, I saw a gold shimmer in your eye. That'd and be kind of creepy. Well, it was. You're like, what the heck? <laughs> That's exactly what I thought. Like, what is that? You're like, what? I thought you had a glitter in your eye or something, <laughs> and it, but I couldn't see it again. And then about a week later, one of your aunts, your, your tia Pupi, was visiting, and you guys were playing a, a staring game, remember? And it was dim in the in the living room, so your pupil was dilated, and she saw a little something, and then she showed your mom and I. And then we just took you to the doctor one day, and next thing we know, three And, days. like, a billion doctors were like, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. And yeah. the last one's like, go to St. Jude's Hospital in Los Angeles. And you're like, what? Yeah, it was <laughs> Children's Hospital, Los Angeles. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, it took us three days to find it. But next thing we know, we are in Los Angeles. And I remember one thing in particular. The psychologist who prepared us before the surgery, we were in her office, and you were playing with a bunch of toys on the floor, and your mom and I were sitting there, and she was telling us what to expect from the surgery and, and everything. And she was talking out loud so that you can hear what we were going to do without hiding anything from you, but not saying it directly to you. But we knew you were listening, and you were smart, so I knew you were picking it up. Mm -hmm. I was and eavesdropping. You were eavesdropping. <laughs> and on the way out, your nana and tata and your mom were walking ahead, and you and I were walking a little further back. And I remember asking you, do you understand what's happening? Do you understand what we're going to do? And you looked at me and you said, yes. They're going to they're gonna take out my eye because of the cancer. And I said, exactly. What do you think about that? How do you feel? And you said, well, I'm scared. And I thought, okay, that's natural to be scared, but what, what are you scared of? And you said, because it's going to hurt when they take out my eye. But I remember telling you, it won't hurt. I promise. They're going to put you to sleep. And when you wake up, it's all over. You won't even know the difference. It might hurt. A little, it's going to feel weird because you're going to have a new eye, a prosthetic eye. But, you know, you're going to pretty much look the same. I didn't like about, like, the part when I was, like, like laying down. And then um, they were um, measuring, like, which would fit better. Uh -huh. And I didn't like it because it took out. And then in, and then out. Oh, the prosthetic. Yeah. Oh, no, that was a different, that was a doctor in Los Angeles. Actually, that was the ocularist, Dr. Haddad. I just remember when we were at the old McDonald's house. The Ronald McDonald house Yeah, Ronald Angeles. McDonald's house. Uh -huh. And I had the eye patch, and we were watching TV, and we were laying down, and then one morning I woke up, and I could, like, I couldn't feel it, but I could kind of, like, feel the socket, kind of. And then I would wake up and I'd be like, do I even remember when I had two eyes? <laughs> and I just, I didn't remember. Because I was like, okay, if I, two, I had two eyes, okay, that would be weird. Would I be looking this way or this way or this way, this way? Like, I would be like Perry the Platypus. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that I want you to remember always, besides the fact that you'll always be my changuita, my little <laughs> no matter how old you get, words to live by. Your, your great-grandfather, Ramon Carvajal, he said, I want to be remembered like this. I want my children and grandkids to remember me like this. Recuerden que tuvieron unos abuelos, unos bisabuelos, pobres, 
pero muy honrados y muy trabajadores. And I want that to live in your heart, your great grandfather's words. Yes, we were poor, but we were very honest and very hardworking. Remember that always. Honesty is the most important thing. And that I love you. <laughs> <laughs> we heard Lourdes and Rogelio Camarillo recorded last year in the StoryCorps booth at the Reed Park Zoo. More Tucson stories are available at azpm.org. Listen in next week as a woman asks her 92-year-old grandfather to tell his story about becoming an amateur goodwill ambassador and being lost at sea during World War II. And now the final episode of the nine-part Arizona Spotlight series, Feeding Our Future. It explores the innovative work being done to feed families, prepare for climate change, improve health, create pathways out of poverty, and promote our local food system. The series is made possible with the support of the Zuckerman Family Foundation. Farmers markets in Tucson used to be for local vores and gourmets who could afford the pricey organic heirloom vegetables. Now, people on public assistance can buy affordable organic food at farmer's markets, and more Tucson schools and hospitals are serving locally grown organic produce. Laura Markowitz brings us the story. Hey, Laurieann, you got tomatoes for me? Yeah, I got tomatoes for you. It's Thursday afternoon. As people are getting off of work, they stop by the Mercado San Augustine. They're picking up bags of fresh salad greens, bundles of Swiss chard, and just pick pomegranates. Okay, let me get you a receipt. This farmer's market is one of three run by the Community Food Bank of Southern Arizona. Part of what the food bank does is the traditional things that you would expect. Getting food from somewhere, whether it's a grocery store or commodities, and getting it out to people that need it. Kara Jones is the Community Food Bank's farmer's market manager. Years and years of doing that, honestly, isn't solving the problem of people needing food. We can't feed people out of hunger. We can't feed them out of poverty. So the food bank decided. What if we took some resources and put them into making people be able to take care of their own food needs? Jones points to a long table under one of the archways. It's loaded with a wide variety of fruits and vegetables. Microgreens, some carrots, uh, lots of summer squash, some figs, green onions. This food was grown by food bank clients. They're part of a food bank program called the Abundant Harvest Cooperative. Which is a collective of over 150 different small gardeners and farmers. These growers came to the food bank for hunger assistance and then they were invited to take a gardening class. Now they're growing food in their backyards, and some weeks they have a surplus. So the food bank sells it for them on consignment at its farmer's markets. On a yearly basis, it's over $100,000 that are going back to especially small-scale growers. A few hundred dollars for each gardener isn't going to lift anyone out of poverty. But Jones says it could mean that in a given month, a family won't need an emergency food box from the community food bank. When people have income, they're not in poverty and don't have to stand in line at the food bank. But there's more going on here. Many of the shoppers are paying for their food with yellow and green vouchers. 
We have a central table here, the information booth, where we have um, a card reader for SNAP and provide kind of an exchange of market money that can then be used. People on WIC and SNAP can double their benefits up to $20 by shopping at the community food bank's farmers markets. Within the city of Tucson alone, it's 93,600 individuals that are receiving hunger relief services this very month. That's 18% of Tucsonans. Michael McDonald is CEO of the Community Food Bank. Even people who are above the ridiculously low poverty level still struggle to make ends meet. And so they are balancing their budget through watering down their food. They're moms, she's not eating so that they can eat. Buying prescription medicines if they're an elder and they go without food. McDonald says the Community Food Bank doesn't really expect to solve the problem of hunger. It's trying to chip away at the root causes by creating more economic opportunities for low-income people. That includes small farmers. The reality is a lot of us don't make enough money to pay all the bills. Anne Lawfield stands behind a table that's covered with tomatoes and greens. Her farm is called High Energy Agriculture. I'm on Social Security and Medicare. The farm does not pay any of my living expenses, bottom line. Does selling here at the farmer's market help you supplement your income? It more keeps the farm going, pays for the seeds and the water and needs to get a little bit better to pay for our labor. Farming is a tough business. 69% of small farms don't make a profit. That's according to the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Kara Jones says many of the farmers selling their food here today are also low income. Over here is Breckenfeld Family Growers. Last week we broke a record, $485. Is that significant for your family income? No, it pays for the cost of the water, maintenance. This is a hobby. Kara Jones hopes that farmers who sell here regularly will profit more over time. They'll get regular customers. That's what's happening a few tables down. There's a line six deep for the Forever Young Farm. I buy the um, Japanese okra from him. I came all the way from Flagstaff, actually, to buy it. Right now? Yeah. No, I'm here for a conference, but <laughs> when I'm in Tucson and the farmer's market's going on, I always come and buy. Forever Young's owner, John Reed, grew that okra down near Arivaca. Had some last night for dinner. I just love it. He's growing on about six acres. And watch out for that. That fence is electrified, so maybe stand right there. <laughs> we have to fortify it against the javelinas and the deer because they're very hungry this time of year and uh, thirsty, and they love cabbage and all of my other vegetables in here. So, Farming isn't just knowing how to grow food. Farmers also need business skills because they need to make money. These rows here are butternut squash that will be marketed probably until Christmas or so. 20 years ago, Reeb gave up a career in finance. He and his wife and two kids left Chicago to become organic farmers in southern Arizona. The first year, a plague of grasshoppers wiped out his crops. Reeb decided to invest in greenhouses. We want to keep our greenhouses very productive because they were expensive to build and we need a return on our investment. A lot of other farms in the Tucson area, maybe their season is over for these greens, and so I have kind of a competitive advantage this time of year that I can still produce uh, greens. Reeb's wife works in Tucson three days a week, 
as a bookkeeper. Her supplemental income is very welcome. Not a lot of money in farming. <laughs> the big money for growers comes from contracts with large institutions like schools and hospitals. Those orders are generally placed a year in advance, so farmers know what to plant and they know they can count on selling that crop. But that's out of reach for most small farmers. Forever Young would need more infrastructure like refrigerated storage and refrigerated trucks. And Reeb's operation is just too small to fill big orders. The Community Food Bank has refrigerated trucks and drivers and refrigerated storage. Last year, it went into the food brokerage business. It's called the Farm to Institution Program, and it helps small local farmers compete with big out-of-state growers. Kara Jones negotiates with institutions like the Tucson Medical Center, and then the 20 small farmers in the program combine their crops so they can fill the big orders. TMC is buying my chard right now, and that's great because I have lots of chard and I wouldn't be able to sell it if it wasn't for them putting this deal together. It's rainbow chard. It's just so crispy, so fresh and delicious. Beth Dorsey is Director of Nutrition and Food Services at the Tucson Medical Center. We usually receive it the day after it's harvested. So the nutrient value is right there. TMC buys 300 pounds of produce a month from the Farm to Institution program. We want to serve healthier foods to our visitors, our guests, and our patients. Tucson Medical Center is a nonprofit community hospital, and it serves a lot of the community food bank's clients. Kara Jones says this is not a coincidence. It's all part of the community food bank's bigger strategy to make healthy, organic food available to low-income people. She says the food bank is also trying to prepare Southern Arizona for the uncertainties of climate change. It's a pretty big bet to say, oh, we'll just always be able to get our fresh, healthy food from Mexico or California or Florida. We need local agriculture in order to ensure that we have food in this region. The Community Food Bank is investing in the local food system. It wants to make sure we can all eat well into the future. For Arizona Spotlight, this is Laura Markowitz. Production of Feeding Our Future is made possible with the support of the Zuckerman Family Foundation. Special thanks goes to Celeste Wesson, Peter Michaels, Steve Bayless, and Jim Blackwood for their assistance. My gratitude goes out to Laura Markowitz for her dedication and diligence in producing the series. This is the final episode of Feeding Our Future, but you can listen to all nine installments at azpm.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can also find our podcasts on iTunes. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Our executive producer is Peter Michaels. I'm producer and host, Mark McLemore. <laughs>